If you're new with us, we are studying the, the Gospel of Luke on Sunday mornings, and tonight we're just going to dip into uh, Luke chapter 2 for just a few moments <clears throat> as we consider uh, the Christmas story. This past year, I spoke uh, for a friend of mine who is a pastor in Spruce Pine, North Carolina. And um, I went to this small town. It's the first time I'd been there so, uh, over near Asheville. And uh, my pastor friend, Zach, was telling me that uh, Spruce Pine is known for producing the purest quartz in the world. Uh, it's really a fascinating story. And he sent me a number of articles. In one article entitled, The Humble Mineral That Transformed the World, the writer said, millions of the digital devices around the world, perhaps the device you hold in your hand, carry a piece of the small North Carolina town inside of them. A local mine manager said, it does boggle the mind a bit to consider that nearly every cell phone and computer chip, you'll find quartz from Spruce Pine, North Carolina. It's amazing what can come from a small town. And we can do one better tonight, can't we? Tonight we celebrate the humble Savior who transformed the world born in the little town of Bethlehem. Millions of people tonight exalt Jesus Christ, the one who was born exactly where Micah the prophet said he would be born and who would do exactly what the prophet said he would do. And in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to uh, 21, Luke's narrative really calls us to rejoice in the birth of our Savior. And I want to give you four reasons for joy tonight from the passage that was just read. First of all, we rejoice tonight in the working of God's providence. It's really staggering when you consider how, <clears throat> how everything shakes out in the birth of Jesus. We're told about Caesar Augustus in verse 1, that is Octavian. He decrees this enrollment, and everyone follows Caesar. After all, he is the world's power of the time. He was held as the Son of God. He was called Savior, and he was worshipped. But something subversive is going on in the story of the gospel, and that is Caesar is just background material. Luke neutralizes Caesar, and he puts all the attention on this baby that is born in Bethlehem. All the David lingo that we read about here is, calls to mind the promise to David that one's going to sit on the throne of David forever. And so Luke here subtly puts Caesar the king of the known world in his place and magnifies the real king, the Lord Jesus. It's a political providence, you might say. God using a political figure to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And there's a, a prophetic providence, right, as you note the geography that Jesus is to be born in Bethlehem. Well, there's a problem. His parents don't reside in Bethlehem. They reside in Nazareth. So how is it that they're going to get to Bethlehem and fulfill this promise? God is even going to use Caesar unknowingly to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. As one writer says, it's like God says, let's make Caesar useful. Hence the decree uh, for a census and for Joseph to return to his roots. He writes, emperors can make fine servants even if they are utterly clueless as to what has taken place. And I think that's a real comfort of Christmas tonight. God is in control of his world tonight. And if God can use some secular census and some political figure in the known world to bring about the birth of Jesus Christ, what might he be doing in our own lives and in our own world tonight? It looks so secular, doesn't it? A census. We're reading about a census. In the, at Christmas time. 
No, we're reminded that God can use all kinds of means to accomplish his ends. And that's a very comforting thought tonight. You find yourself tonight in a tough spot. You find yourself tonight in need of hope, in need of comfort. We find comfort tonight in the working of God's providence. Secondly, we rejoice tonight in the wonder of Christ's incarnation. Verses 6 and 7, the attention is given to Jesus and his birth, and it's so incarnate, this incarnation. It's so human, isn't it? It's so humble that Jesus Christ would be born wrapped in these swaddling cloths, and they would put him in a manger, better yet, a feeding trough, because there was no place for him in the inn. You see a footnote if you have an ESV Bible that at the end there is guest room, which is translated that way in other translations is really more accurate. We often make up this mythical figure of the innkeeper that uh, he's rude and, and won't let Jesus be born in his hotel. When, when, when the word here is, is, is really this, um, as those homes had guest rooms and they had an attached kind of lower deck where the animals would come in uh, for safety and so on. And because you've got a lot of family members in Bethlehem for this census, it's likely that the guest room is, is taken up. And so the only place for Mary and Joseph to go would be down to that lower level uh, where the animals were kept. And there were probably a lot of other people there who were, who, uh, as well. And we marvel at the fact that Jesus Christ here is born in a feeding trough. I mean, if God is your father, you think you might get some hotel hookups, right? <laughs> and yet... There's no place for him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John said. And how enfleshed he was. Love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. The word became flesh, or the word had fingernails and dwelt among us. C.S. Lewis described how, how in the story of Christianity, God goes down, down, down in order to bring the whole ruined world up with him. That's the wonder of the incarnation. Now, we know tonight that many of our friends, many of our family members, perhaps, cannot accept the story of Christmas because they don't have a category for the miraculous. I remember some time ago being in Manhattan, seeing a billboard with Santa Claus and a picture of Jesus that said, keep the merry, dump the myth. And many today view this birth, they view the resurrection, they, they view conversion as mythical. But I take my stand with Spurgeon, who said the greatest and momentous fact for which the history of the world records is the fact of his birth. He came. Or probably even better, Luther's quote when he says, No other God have I but thee, born on a manger, died on a tree. God with us, Emmanuel. And when you strip the miraculous of Christianity, I don't know why you would want that Christianity personally. What you have is a self-improvement religion. You pull it together, you be nice, you do good. But the message of Christmas is staggeringly better, isn't it? God has done the miraculous. He has punched a hole in the barrier between heaven and earth and broken into time and space, and now there's hope for people like us. We, 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 we rejoice tonight in the wonder of this incarnation. Jesus Christ coming among us. God went about it in such a strange way, didn't he? The whole, the whole story here is just so unlike the paradigms of today's wisdom. I don't know if you've been doing any uh, strategic planning in t for 2022, or maybe you just gave up on that 
after 2020 and 2021. <laughs> you know how that works, right? You, you establish your goals, and then we develop a plan to see how we're going to reach those goals. Can you imagine doing strategic planning with the story of the birth of Jesus and the salvation of the world? All right, guys, here are my goals. 2,000 years from now, I'd like the majority of the world to know my name. I would like about a fourth of the world to center their lives on me. I would like my teaching to be seen as the most important body of thought ever written. I would like two-thirds of major civilizations to be based on my person and work and teaching. Those are some lofty goals. How do we get there? Make sure you're born in a manger. Right? Spend most of your life in obscurity. Never live in a major urban area. Stay outside of all the political networks. And just as you're beginning your career in your prime, get executed. Would you come up with a plan like that? God's wisdom is remarkable. This plan of salvation is staggering. As Paul said in Romans 11, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. We rejoice at the wonder of the incarnation. Thirdly, we rejoice in the words of the angel. The words of the angel here are very important in verses 8 and following. <clears throat> because all we have up until the first seven verses, if you're just looking at it with the human eye, not knowing any of the background, or any of the stuff in the Old Testament, you have two peasants giving birth to a child and being born in this feeding trough. What is significant about that? Well, the angel tells us the significance of this event. And the heavenly host that praises God shows us the weight of the significance of what's just happened. Like if you see a strange event, you need explanation, don't you? If we don't have the angel here explaining things to us, who this Jesus is and what he came to do, then we just have the event. If we all just circled up tonight for some strange reason and ate a moon pie and drank an RC cola and then threw our trash away and left, we would be like, what was that about? Right? Was this to commemorate a friend who liked moon pies? Was this like our attempt to return to the 1930s? You need someone to explain that phenomenon, don't you? What we have here is this birth of this child wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, and God sends an angel to explain it. And marvel upon marvel sends the angel to shepherds to let them know the significance of what's just happened. And notice verse 11, as the angel tells us what we should know about the one who was born. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Those three terms are very important. He is Christ. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. By calling him Christ, the angel saying he's the promised one you've been waiting on. By calling him Lord, he's saying he is divine. And by calling him Savior, he's saying he's the one you need. Right? To be a Savior implies you need to be saved. Jesus is only good news if you first believe the bad news. It's kind of like, you know, this time of year we're receiving presents. I'm sure many of you will exchange some presents. Have you ever received a present that offended you? <laughs> right? you it's hard to say thanks because you have to swallow your pride. Like if one of my kids gives me a gift on, you know, miraculous formula to grow hair. Like they're saying something about my condition, aren't they? Or some magic pill to grow taller. Um, 
they're saying something. Or if someone gives you some mouthwash for Christmas. I can't, it's hard to say thanks, isn't it? Or maybe a book on how to overcome self-centeredness. It's like, here, Johnny, was really thinking about you this year? It's a book on how to overcome your self-centeredness. You see, some gifts require you to be humble, to admit certain things. And the people tonight that rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ has come into the world are the people who recognize their desperate need for him. And if you don't recognize your need for him, you don't value him and appreciate him. But tonight we celebrate Christ because we are without hope and we are desperate and without a savior. And the angel says to these shepherds, he's come, Christ the Lord, the savior. God didn't send an economist because our greatest problem tonight is not the economy. God didn't send a philosopher because our greatest problem is not incoherence. He didn't send an entertainer because our greatest problem tonight is not boredom. He didn't send an administrator because our greatest problem tonight is not disorganization. God sent a savior because our greatest problem is our sin and its consequences. To become a Christian, all you need is need. To admit you have need. And we praise God tonight, those who've embraced Jesus Christ, because Jesus has come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, and our greatest problem has already been solved. And to that we rejoice, don't we? And then finally we rejoice in the witness of these shepherds. The unexpected wisdom of God continues in this story as the message is given to these insignificant, marginalized figures of their day. Shepherds. I mean, <clears throat> if you had a big story, how would you get the news out? The story's not leaked to uh, prominent journalists. The highest level of authorities aren't told about it. There's no press conference. Jesus is not trending on social media. The message is communicated to shepherds. They represent what Luke calls throughout his gospel, good news to the poor. Good no news to those who are in need of good news. He uses these shepherds to hear this message and they will be the first to witness the good shepherd being born in Bethlehem. They say in verse 15, let's go see. And I love the spirit of those shepherds. I wish more people would do this before dismissing Christianity. Let's at least go see. Let's check it out. Mary, at the end of the story, is more reflective. She's pondering these things. After the shepherds see it, they praise God. And they go about telling everybody what they've seen and what they've heard. And what I love about this message being communicated to the shepherds is that God is showing us here that the good news is for everyone. Did you notice in verse 11, the angel said, for unto you is born. And that message is for you tonight too. Unto you, to these lowly shepherds, a savior's been born. And to us, even us, a savior, Christ the Lord, has been born. One minute they're watching over their flock at night, the next minute, they're watching the unfolding of salvation history. These shepherds, and they see him. And that's what Christianity is all about. In the following story, there's an old guy named Simeon. He says, after I've seen Jesus, I'm ready to depart now. Salvation is not adopting some religious code of conduct. It's about knowing a person, Jesus Christ. And we rejoice tonight in that this message has come to even us. 
just as it came to the shepherds. And so, church, we celebrate, we say joy to the world for the working of God's providence. That's the comfort of Christmas. The wonder of Christ's incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The words of this angel, Jesus is the Christ, the Lord, the Savior, and the witness of these shepherds that this good news is even for us. And I pray you've received this good news. And if you haven't, there's nothing more we'd love to do than to talk to you more about the gospel. And if you have, then we stand in the tradition of these shepherds, don't we? Glorifying and praising God for all that we have heard and all that we've seen. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we thank you tonight for fulfilling your promises. As we see in your word, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And Christmas is one gigantic yes. So many promises, so many prophecies being fulfilled in this historic occasion, this unique occasion. And Lord Jesus, we praise you for your humility, how your birth was just indicative of the rest of your life. And we praise you tonight also for now your exaltation and for your sovereign reign and your people long to see you again. We pray you be magnified in our hearts even now as we continue in worship through song. In Jesus' good name we pray. Everybody said, <clears throat> amen.